talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. We are heading into the long Easter weekend. I hear the Easter Bunny will mask up in high-risk situations. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah, there you go. As we all should, I might add. Good afternoon. It is 3.09. It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. All right, another jam-packed show and uh, a lot going on today. But, uh, you, you know, if, I guess the great news uh, is that uh, we remember the situation yesterday in New York City uh, with the subway shooting. Uh, there has been a suspect arrested. So uh, great news there. And, of course, all the details, uh, Diana and Dave, uh, keeping you abreast on how that story changes and progresses throughout the course of the afternoon. But uh, good news. Uh, the people in Brooklyn, New York City, feeling a little safer today. Uh, a suspect has been apprehended in uh, that uh, shooting yesterday in the uh, Brooklyn subway. Uh, also, big news, uh, and you know, man, we've. Um, <laughs> I remember talking. Uh, you know, I, I do the the IG show with Don uh, Fox every week, uh, planning your financial future, and um, and you know, we've been talking about low interest rates forever. And just before the global pandemic hit, the interest rates were actually starting to go up. And the plans were in place for that to happen. And uh, all of a sudden, the pandemic hit, and we know what happened. Everything came to a grinding halt, uh, including supply chains and, and manufacturing, production, uh, distribution, everything. Uh, and, and economies literally stopped. And, and the world was put on pause. And as a result, in order to uh, get through all of this, obviously lots of government programs, lots of money thrown into the system to keep people afloat and, and to keep the systems afloat and such. Uh, now that uh, pandemic, uh, on, <laughs> I don't say it's over, but certainly we're way ahead of it with vaccine and such, uh, is that, uh, you know, things are starting to open up. The economy is growing. The unemployment rate is at its lowest rate ever as people get back to work. All you have to do is look in the skies to see the planes flying and the traffic that's on the road to know that uh, people are back at it. So with that, uh, buying more, the economy gears up, and, and we've got inflation. So uh, the Bank of Canada announced today that it uh, would be increasing its rate by a half a point, which is quite a big jump considering what we've seen <laughs> Maybe not historically, but certainly for us during pandemics, uh, when it was jumping and going up and down about a quarter of a point each time now. Uh, and last time, what the increase was a quarter of a point. Now it's a half point, uh, bringing the Bank of Canada rate up to uh, 1%. So here's what Tiff Macklin, the governor of the Bank of Canada, had to say about all this. That higher inflation, those higher prices, they're impacting all Canadians. We need to get uh, inflation down. Uh, the economy is strong. It can handle higher interest rates. It needs higher interest rates to bring demand uh, in balance with supply. And here's what uh, James Orlando had to say, uh, senior economist for TD. Anyone that has lines of credit, which are tied to prime rates, they're going to be paying more money on interest costs. Anyone that has their mortgage rate resetting, those resets are going to be at higher rates. And so our view is that we're going to get to extremely high levels on the amount of money that Canadians are going to be 
putting towards uh, servicing their debt payment. All right, so there you have it. Um, it. It looks like the era of extremely ultra low interest rates are, are certainly behind us. Low interest rates still. Uh, anything that we're seeing now that uh, you know anything that's uh, <laughs> when you think about it is is below uh, what say people were paying for homes way back when. You know six percent, you know seven uh, percent, and then even up to the you know high end single digits. Um, you know that is is all but history. So what we're seeing now is still historically extremely low, uh, low interest rates, but we've been in this environment uh, for the past twenty. 15, 20 years, 15 years. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, that's a long time for people to get used to the interest rates that we're seeing and have over leveraged themselves. So uh, it'll be interesting because when you think about it, post pandemic world event, whether it's a, a war, what have you, what we're seeing now with a global pandemic um, and, and, and obviously conflict with uh, Russia invading Ukraine all creates instability. So the climate is right for things to start going up. And as that economy kicks back in, um, you know, there's already too much money in the system because because of uh, the relief that we've needed to have in order to get through the global pandemic. So uh, we're probably in for a bit of a bumpy ride as we get back to whatever the heck the new normal is and uh, things uh, stabilize a little bit. So we'll talk about that coming up over the course of the show. Also, uh, half of Canadians feel communities are poorly planned. Boy, aren't we now realizing that when we're wondering where all the houses are and why we haven't been building them for the last bazillion years. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, Phil Gursky is going to be joining us, uh, former CSIS analyst, talk about uh, what has transpired uh, in New York City, in the Brooklyn subway, and uh, how we can perhaps end New York City better protect itself and everybody. What can we learn from all of this? Also, uh, as the situation with Russia and Ukraine continues to heat up, Finland and Sweden both talking seriously of joining NATO. We'll have that discussion coming up a little later on as well. As we sit and watch, uh, and some of us feeling quite helpless about what is going on in Ukraine uh, at the hands of the Russian invasion, now into what, day 49? Uh, we are now, and and feeling helpless and not knowing what to do. Well, here's something locally uh, that you can do. It was announced that uh, the Westdale Theater will host Hamilton Help Ukraine coming up on May 5th, 7 o'clock uh, in the evening. It's uh, an evening of music, film, conversation in support of the Canadian Ukraine, found, uh, Canadian Ukraine Foundation and its humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. To talk more about all of this, Neil Miller is with us, owner of the Westdale, and with us now. Neil, thank you for the time. I hope you doing well i'm good scott thanks for having us before we get to what's going on with ukraine uh tell us neil what's going on with uh, uh the westdale theater and how you are managing where we are in this pandemic and moving forward well we're managing the best we can we're open full tilt uh we have a full slate of events every night of the week and uh people are starting to feel more comfortable coming out so, and of course uh, you can f- it's go good. ahead it's good it's uh positive thewestdale.ca to find out more. All right, how did this, first of all, tell us what's going to happen on May 5th. Yeah, so on May 5th, what we, uh, we're, we've partnered with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress of Hamilton, and uh, it's a night of education, really. Um, we're going to be showing a film. It's a documentary called Hunger for Truth, the Rhea Kleiman story. Um, and it, uh, it speaks a lot to the, the history of Ukraine and the struggles that they've had. So we're going to screen that film. There'll be music, uh, there'll be an art exhibition, a Ukrainian-Canadian tapestry um, that will feature the history of Ukrainians in Hamilton. And then we'll also have speakers. 
um, to answer questions from the audience and really help us understand as a local community in Hamilton what we can do uh, to help the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine. How did this whole evening come about? Well, like everyone, we sit down and we wonder what can we do? We see these images on TV, we hear about it, we see it in our scrolls, and uh, we felt like it was important. I mean, we're, we're a community theater. It's the heart and center of everything we do. So we reached out to our friends, and uh, our friends are the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. And, you know, they understand what's going on, so it's best to let them lead the way. So they've been incredible partners. They're such kind, uh, generous folks. Um, how did you? So they how did you? The whole evening. I was about to ask you, Neil. How did you come up with the plan for the evening? What you do? What uh, what the lineup yeah, is? Yeah. Well, it it started with our board of directors. Uh, we're a not for profit charity, and we um, connected. We we knew folks who were part of the Canadian the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, and we talked to them. We had a meeting, and we said, "Look, what's the best thing that we can do? How can we help? We have a we have a theater. We have a space." Um, how, how do we do this? And they, they took the lead and they, um, they reached out within their community to find the music and then they recommended a film and we tracked down the film and it was really an effort led by them. And how long is the film? About 50 minutes. So it's not, uh, it's not terribly long. Um, I mean, it's serious material, so it gives you yeah. time to digest. Yeah. And then after, uh, we have, uh, Larissa Zorichniak coming in, and she's the president of the Ukraine Youth Association, and she'll answer our questions, you know, from her perspective. And uh, she's lived in Ukraine, so she she understands uh, what the the history is and the present, obviously. What's the response been like from the community, Neil? Incredible. Um, I mean, we just put it up for sale a day or so ago, and ticket sales are are rolling in. It's twenty dollars, and every penny of that twenty dollars. Um, goes directly to the Canada-Ukraine Foundation. And how many can you accommodate? 345. 345, and I'm really hoping that this is the first time we can fill the room in over two years. Um, It would mean everything to us if we could fill it up. Well, if there's ever a cause, Neil, this would be it, wouldn't it? Yeah. No doubt, Scott. Um here's hoping um, you don't have to do more of these, but is, is this something, you know, like you talked about the Westdale theater being a community theater. So it represents what's going on. It's not a case of, no, we're bringing in shows and hoping the rest of the community loves it. So that's, that's pretty cool. Entertainment and entertainment provides great cultural value. um, But also telling these kinds of stories, this isn't the, the last fundraiser we're going to host. Yeah. I think it's important as an organization to uh, take what's top of mind and topical and provide a space for people to be educated and share their ideas and thoughts. All right. If people want to find out more and buy tickets, Neil, what do we do? Thewestdale.ca. All right. Uh, Thewestdale.ca to find out more. The Ukrainian Canadian Congress and the Westdale hoping to raise awareness, uh, obviously, of the situation going on in Ukraine. And it's all happening May 5th at 7 o'clock. And you can find out more at thewestdale.ca. Neil, congratulations. Great idea. Good luck with this moving forward. Thanks, Scott. We really appreciate your time. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Man, it's amazing how our priorities change. It's amazing how a global ca- uh, global pandemic can spin you around three times blindfolded and then uh, leave you walking in circles. Uh, because uh, attitudes are really changing, and and I think one way we can we can understand that is when do you remember housing ever being such an issue? Uh, and again, it was always sort of there in the back burner. Yeah, yeah, we need that. Yeah, 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 we got to get that one done. It's kind of like healthcare. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, we got to get to that. You know, but it's you know, there's all these other things like climate change and. Uh, whatever the, whatever the, whatever the, uh, you know, uh, causes of the day are. And now all of a sudden in a post pandemic world, things like inflation and, and housing are becoming and housing affordability are massive, massive issues. How do you feel about your community and the way it's planned? What it looks like? What it's turned out to? Uh, let's ask Dave Krasinski, research director with Angus Reed Institute and with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It's, it's really interesting. I was just looking at our uh, top issues facing Canada chart while you were saying uh, it's interesting that um, housing affordability has become such an issue. Um, if you look at, so let's see, September 2020, uh, only 14% of Canadians said that that was a top issue for them. It's now 31%. And the only thing that uh, beats housing affordability on top issues is healthcare. So, uh, yeah, the the dynamic has changed a lot uh, with COVID drops down the list and it and you know people start choosing other options and they're really really leaning toward housing affordability and uh, healthcare in the economy now. Many of us are saying it is about time. It is really about time. Why do you think this is happening now? Why all of a sudden, boom, it's all about housing, and we've got the Prime Minister federally talking about what he's going to do to try to get more houses built? Yeah, and you know, I think that a lot of people, like you mentioned, have been talking about this for a long time, um, and it kind of depends at where you are in the country. You know, we've been having those conversations in Vancouver for for ages and in Toronto for ages, but I think what's happened is because the issue has spilled over into some of those areas that have traditionally, you know, housing prices might have been rising, but they weren't going through the roof. But I'm I'm in Kelowna right now, and they just released the average price of a home in Kelowna, and it's over a million dollars now. Hmm. So I can go to a neighborhood that I grew up in where a house sold for one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in 1998, and now the bid for it is nine hundred. Um, so I think people are, there's more of an awareness because it's hitting places like Atlantic Canada, you know, it's, it's hitting Winnipeg, it's hitting places all over the country and, uh, people turn to their political leaders and say, Hey, what, what's happening here? Because, you know, there, there might be things that the federal government can do. People will always point to the provincial and municipal governments as well, but, um, that that's that's what people turn to their government for is say hey you, you got to fix this because things are spinning out of control and i think it's become more evident over the last two years and you can spin it and 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 you know uh, you know factor in pandemics and interest rates and in the economy and it's all the perfect storm and all that sort of crap but at the end of the day it all comes down to there has been a lack of supply uh, and, and people just have not been building over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Is this the environmental movement now clashing with the housing movement? Because I think a lot of 
I think a lot of the reason that this development was stopped over the last, and I'm old enough to remember all this, is that, you know, I remember Premier saying, I'm not interested in building anymore. And then all of a sudden you're behind the eight ball and you're playing catch up. Uh, and and the, the big chatter, you know, in the 80s and 90s was urban sprawl and we can't do this and we can't do that and everybody's got to go up. Well, nobody did and nobody wants it in their backyard. And now the two, it's like the two causes are colliding. Yeah, I think that you make a good point there in the fact that it is those two things coming, you know, to a loggerheads is that, yeah, you've had a real hesitancy to to build up in a lot of places and municipal uh, councils, you know, look at these proposals and say, you know, we don't want a a six-story building there. You're going to block the view of the people that have been here for 40 years. And those discussions are all over the country uh, in growing cities. Um, And what I think the we're in a place now where we've got to sort of do both. You know, we, we have to, we Absolutely. have to fall and we have to go up. And, you know, there is, you know, speaking of the, of the data that we're looking at, you know, there's, there was this sense, a lot of people would say, you know, in, in busy cities, oh, we're developing too quickly. And there was a concern that, that people wanted to slow down the pace of development. Yeah. But that's not, that's not the case uh, in the data that we've got here. You know, people are much more likely to say that, uh, development is too slow or, or it's, uh, you know, it, we've got to try to speed it up, uh, at least kind of turn things up a little bit because only a quarter of Canadians think we're developing too quickly in their communities. So, um, I think there's a, a recognition that we've got to, um, get working and there's a number of different policy measures that people would, would generally support. Um, but building is, is one of them that is uh, pretty uncontroversial. Uh, you know, and how much of this, Dave, do you think is perception rather than fact? Yeah, you know, uh, we're building too much. We're doing this. We're doing that. And then, uh, you know, it's the opposite that's happening. And again, I compare it to the healthcare system. It's like we're all patting ourselves on our back trying to pretend it's better than what it is and the problem doesn't exist. Yeah, well, and, and we asked a question similar to that recently. And, and Canadians were, I, I think, a little uh, more aware of the pandemic being a bit of a wake-up call rather than a confirmation that our healthcare system is working because, mm. you know, everybody who wanted to have a surgery for two years, if it wasn't life-threatening, you know, there's a pretty good chance you weren't getting in. Um, so I think people see the cracks in the healthcare system and they're starting to see the cracks in just the way that we plan and build communities. And they're looking at things. We ask them if there should be you know, somebody who, who governs over your community, your province, and, and federally that's that's constantly looking at these issues and that can kind of have the the authority to make decisions um, about development. You know, one of the things that they're talking about at the provincial level in, in B.C. is the provincial government coming in and having ultimate authority over municipal building and saying, if we think a project is in the province's interest, you can't the council can't say no to yeah. it anymore. We might work with you to figure out what's happening, but you can't just say outright no because, you know, the, we're in a situation where it is a crisis and uh, we've, we've got to start getting that, that supply catching up uh, so that uh, we can try to put uh, release a little bit of the pressure on the housing market. And then at the federal level, obviously, you, you hear some... Uh, foreign buyer bans, which are very popular. There's kind of mixed reviews over how mm-hmm. much of an impact that will have, but those are also very popular. So certainly you're going to see the government leveraging the fact that they've put that in their budget.
And Dave, this isn't going to be a problem that goes away by the time the next election rolls around. If it's here and it's in people's faces right now, I think it's here for a while. Oh, yeah. And if you look at a lot of the policy measures, you know, there was a new measure for, for home buyers under 40 that was in the recent federal budget, um, but doesn't start until 2023. And then it's largely just a, it's it's a tax-free savings account. Yeah. And a lot of people are looking at that and saying, oh, well, that's that's great, but I, I need more than $40,000 yeah. or $60,000 to yeah. even get a, a down payment now. Um, so this is going to be one of the defining issues, I think, of the election, you've seen Pierre Polyev uh, already making that a big point of his leadership campaign is that he's going to tackle housing and people people want to hear that, that something is going to happen. You know, the, the policy reality of it, I think, will be a little more complicated. But narratively, I think it's a really effective issue to run on because people br- blame whoever's in power. And, and the Trudeau government has been in power for seven years now. And things have pretty inarguably uh, gotten worse for for people who are trying to enter the market. It's got to be frustrating. Uh, Dave, as always, thanks so much for the time and uh, your view on life. Dave Krasinski, Research Director with Angus Reid Institute uh, from beautiful British Columbia. Thanks, Dave. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This time yesterday, we're talking uh, about a uh, shooting in the in a Brooklyn subway station and trying to make sense as to what was going on as someone goes in and tosses a couple of smoke uh, grenades, uh, you know, setting, um, you know, obviously a cloud of smoke off and then just starts firing. Thank goodness uh, nobody killed, but obviously many injured. Good news coming out this morning that a uh, a suspect has been arrested. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. He is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, well, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing good. Uh, we finally have a suspect, well, finally, quickly have a suspect arrested. What, is your, what are your thoughts at this at, at first look? Because it, uh, it could have been much, much worse. It could have been indeed. And we certainly have seen mass shootings, Scott, in the past couple of weeks, yet again in our neighbors of the South, where people have been killed over disputes over a barbecue and picnic and basketball games and such. So we're very much, I think, accustomed to hearing this happen in the United States. And the fact that no one was killed, to the best of my knowledge, is somewhat miraculous given the firepower the man had. So, you know, count our blessings on this one that no one was killed, but it could have been an awful lot worse. So I, I find the interesting part and the weirdest part is now they've arrested somebody. Uh, this guy is he's he's hard to describe in terms of what his motivation was. That's my next point. Uh, uh, the suspect has been arrested. It's not necessarily what we think. What do we know here? Well, we do know, and this is from CNN, I'm just quoting from CNN this afternoon, Scott, that he had posted videos discussing violence and mass shootings. It looks like he had said some things online that were racist in nature. He wanted to kill people, watch people die in front of him. He had some, what again, quoting CNN, broad societal and racial groups he appeared to hate. He was uh, against African-Americans, despite being an African-American himself. He has talked in, in using misogyny and racist language. So what this all is at this point is it's really it's hard to nail down. It's like putting jello to a wall. You've got a guy that appears to have hatred towards African-Americans, despite being an African-American himself. So the other thing I think is important, Scott, and I know we're going to talk about sort of the terrorism angle. This could very well have been a hate crime. 
or a mm. racist crime, but hate crimes and terrorism are not synonymous, and nor should they be. It, 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 and I obviously we'll figure out more as, as time goes by and the investigation continues, but uh, is this almost someone who just snapped rather than someone with a real plan? It looks like it. And you're, and you're absolutely, it's important you said that, that we have to wait for more information. We, as consumers of information, want to know everything now. And, and we want the answers now. We're not going to get them right now. He has to be interrogated. They have to go through his computer, through his social media sites, et cetera, et cetera. And that takes time, you know, to do investigations. As you mentioned in your in your outset, I did work for CSIS. Investigations aren't done in five minutes. They take much longer than that. So we're going to learn a lot more. And and hopefully the uh, law enforcement can determine what was the actual motivation. As is, as you just suggested, did he snap one day? Was this something that was that was going to happen eventually? Was it long in the making or not? We're going to have to wait for that information to roll in, unfortunately. And what does it tell you when he was taken without incident? It sort of may, gives you the impression he didn't want to go down in a hail of gunfire or a blaze of glory. It certainly does. And so it's interesting because some people, you know, it's the old Andy Warhol thing. Scott, you're 15 minutes of fame. Does yeah. he want to use this as a soapbox? Does he want to be on the national media? Does he want to be given the opportunity to share with us his screeds that are that are racist in nature? I have no idea. But certainly he was either a coward and wouldn't go out you know, guns blazing or he thinks he can use this to further whatever agenda that he may have had in mind in the first place. Uh, you said he had firepower to do a lot more. It sounds like it. And I'm not a weapons expert by right. any stretch of the imagination, but we're talking about a country, a country, Scott, where you can get an AR-15 when you, when you buy your morning paper. So yeah. certainly he would have been able in principle to get something that was, was quite, quite terrible, as we've seen in the past. The fact that he didn't, maybe that suggests something as well in terms of you know, the seriousness of his crime. He says he wanted to kill as many people as possible. Well, what he didn't. And is that a failure or is that a failure of imagination or is it for whatever reason he couldn't get access to the weaponry that, the weaponry that he needed? As uh, what often happens after scenarios like this, uh, people, officials, politicians standing out going that we have to demand uh, this to stop and all sorts of things. What can wh- what do you do, Phil? How do you I mean, there's the oh, million God, dollar God, question. What do you do? Uh, can they make their subway any safer? I guess is, the, is my question. The answer is no. I mean, it, it was, if it wasn't the subway, it would have been Fifth Avenue. It would have been a park. Yeah. It would have been Central Park. It could have been, you know, the East River. It could have been anywhere. That's the problem when you work in national security, public safety is you can't guard everything at the same time. There's only limited resources. And a, a person who's intent on doing some harm will find a place that's less guarded and is easier to access. So the short answer is no, you can't stop these things completely. You can you can do things to put measures in place, but it's going to happen nonetheless. But And, and the, the, the silver lining, Scott, is that these things happen rarely. Now, yeah. mass shootings happen a lot in the States, but you know terrorist mass shootings don't happen every day. That's a good thing. This is not Afghanistan. It's not Somalia where these things happen on a weekly basis. So I, I just caution listeners to, to, to put this in context. It's a terrible thing. Uh, seems to have ended rather better than worse at this point. And uh, we'll, we'll figure out more information as it comes in and see what it all means. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, great conversation. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. The uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. Uh, obviously, a repositioning and uh, reload. No one knows what that's going to be like. Uh, and, and many hoping for the best as uh, Russia looks to at least claim something out of Ukraine. A lot of this started uh, with Ukraine just getting a little too cozy to the West, including chatter of uh, joining NATO. Although uh, President Zelensky said early on in this invasion that um, he was not interested in that.
However, there's uh, speculation flying around that Finland and Sweden are both seriously considering joining NATO. And since that was uh, obviously a concern of Vladimir Putin's, uh, how would he feel knowing that two more countries are uh, getting ready to sign up? Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Your thoughts of Finland and Sweden talking about joining NATO, why now, and does this change the discussion with Russia and Ukraine in any way? These are two countries uh, that, as recently as a few years ago, were trying to find new ways of cooperating with Russia uh, through the Arctic Council, through trade, through ways of diminishing tensions. But in the past couple of years, Russia has become ever more aggressive. It has exercised increased pressure on the Baltic states. And you began to see a shift in popular opinion in Sweden and in Finland. The actions of Russia, whether it is domestic repression or external uh, aggressiveness, has induced these countries to begin to reorient themselves, to think of becoming closer to NATO. And yes, uh, Vladimir Putin does not like the expansion of NATO. He does not like the fact that NATO exists. Uh, His main goal, of course, is to stay in power. But uh, it tells us that if he loses Finland and Sweden, these two countries join NATO, he is really a terribly bad strategist. Because uh, if these two countries... uh, cannot find peaceful ways, neutral uh, means of dealing with Russia, it Hmm. means that Russia will face an ever more hostile group of countries on its territory, not because they began by having ill will towards Russia, but because actions by the Kremlin have so concerned these countries, so alienated them, that they were driven to this. Does Putin realize that? Does he realize that, you know, instead of convincing those to to side with him and leave NATO uh, in its dust, he's actually pushing countries towards NATO? He may well realize it, but he doesn't much care because he wants to stay in power. Mm -hmm. So his primary goal in Ukraine was not really NATO. NATO is the excuse not the real cause. The real cause is the fear that he had that Ukraine could become a successful democracy, which would present a contrast to the corrupt, corrosive uh, regime that he runs, a kind of kleptocracy, which has become ever more repressive. And there is a correlation between internal repression and external uh, aggressiveness. And so he needed to look in a sense for foreign adventures because otherwise he would have to face the reality at home. And he did not want to bring in the kind of reforms that would be necessary because that would mean giving up some power. So he tried to get external successes, whether it was in Georgia in 2008 or in Crimea in 2014 or in Syria in 2015. But this is like a drug. You have to keep increasing the dose. Hmm. And so, in some ways, you might even say that he was trapped by this kind of model where he wanted to keep power domestic at all costs. He wanted to have 
modernization in Russia without democratization. And it could not square that circle. And so consequently, there was increasing pushback from home. External adventures increases popularity. Look at the opinion polls in Russia right now. Even though we view, uh, many of us, at least in the West, view Putin as a war criminal, uh, and President Biden has accused him of perpetrating genocide in Ukraine, his popularity within Russia has skyrocketed because he has successfully diverted attention away from the enormous problems that Russia is facing domestically. So in regard to Finland and Sweden and, and joining NATO and such, uh, will this happen or is this something that, t- that it's a, such a long process it won't affect the immediate situation? It is not a done deal. Uh, these countries have to, first of all, decide that they will join. Mm-hmm. Both have come closer to NATO. They are cooperating with NATO. Finland uh, has decided to buy the F-35 uh, uh, stealth fighters, which is a system, and it has to be integrated within uh, NATO to be right. really uh, effective. And you can see opinion polls uh, shifting. But these two countries meet the criteria for joining NATO. Ukraine did not. So as uh, Secretary General of NATO, Jan Stoltenberg, said, should these two countries decide they want to join, they could join almost overnight. And for Russia, this would be a terribly bad strategic development because these are countries that have very capable militaries. Finland has um, a border of several hundred miles with Russia. It is uh, really sort of the unintended consequence of this invasion, where supposedly he, uh, Vladimir Putin wanted to prevent further enlargement of NATO, and he provoked exactly that. Hmm. R.O. Brown with us, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, Finland and Sweden, talking about joining NATO, uh, which uh, will obviously inflame uh, Russian President Putin, who's uh, uh, trying to keep countries from doing so. R.O., thanks, to- uh, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Liberals and NDP talking, this is provincially, because the provincial election coming up in June. Uh, and we weren't really, the campaign really isn't officially started yet, but uh, some are talking about um, voting strategically in order to keep the Conservatives out. Uh, and Andy, Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath um, has said, she's asking, this is out of the uh, CBC, I'm asking folks who may have decided in the past to vote Liberal to keep Conservatives out to recognize that this time that's not the strategy. This time the strategy will split the vote and cause Doug Ford to come up the middle. Um, and so is basically saying uh, voting NDP is the way to prevent Ford from being re-elected. Uh, says uh, uh, Andrea Horvath. So are we already at the stage where uh, we're making deals with uh, other governments? I mean, the campaign hasn't started. Is that giving up or conceding defeat? Um, and 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 who's to say who the second-place candidate is? Because the poll's showing that keeps changing. Uh, let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, thanks, Scott. Are you surprised we're hearing about this now? It seems a little early to be making deals. No, I think so. I've been waiting for this to happen 
because I was expecting uh, this was going to happen because over the last uh, you know a couple months or so, you've seen that the two parties, the Liberals and the NDP, have been jostling to be you know the uh, second place party, and uh, oftentimes we see in elections that. Uh, the fighting between, uh, say, the liberals and the NDP, while a lot of people aren't paying attention to it, is more intense than either of those two parties fighting the conservatives because they're they're fighting to be, you know, one of the top two parties. It's just very important to them. And how do you decide who is the one to best represent second when the polls are having them going back and forth quite a bit? Ah, now this is very difficult. Some some. Some people, some of the voters who pay attention to to, uh, to what's going on in their constituency, will take a look and they'll figure out who will be the top two, uh, you know, uh, people to, who will get uh, polled in the in the uh, in the constituency. And if their party is looks like it's going to come in third, they'll switch to. Oftentimes, will switch to one of the two. But it's not easy because uh, the information, polling information at the uh, at the constituency level is not uh, available to ordinary voters. Uh, the parties do a lot of this, but the voters don't. So the only way that uh, the voters can really be intelligently do a uh, third-party voting is they need an outside group that's not connected to either the liberals or the NDP, and that tells them what are what's the best chances for getting somebody other than a party they don't want. In this case, it's usually who, who uh, you know, if you don't want the conservatives, what's, what's the best party to vote for? Now, so far, I haven't seen any organization come to the fore. What, what, where we did see this once was 1999, and that, that was an election that is, looks very similar to ours. It was Mike Harris going for the second time. Uh, he had ruffled a lot of feathers, just like Ford has ruffled a lot of feathers, and uh, a, a group got together in the last six weeks or so of the campaign, and they started advising people how to vote, you know, uh, strategically to keep the conservatives out. Now, they did, they did defeat some of the incumbent conservatives, but not enough, and Harris went on with to, to get a majority. So, but the, they, were only, they only partially organized the province. They did a good job in the Toronto area. Even in the Hamilton area, they did a good job. But uh, they didn't do it, uh, you know, all, they weren't well organized all through the province. So you have to, you know, you need money. You have to basically do, you know, constituency uh, elections, which normally are never made public. And you'd have to purchase those from a polling company. And you then would have to, you know, basically publicize your, your findings to the people in the in the writings and uh, for it to really work. But it, it did partially work, but it didn't, you know, not su- from their point of view, not successfully to defeat uh, the Harris government. It all sounds very complicated, Henry. Why not just try to win the damn thing? Yeah, but the whole problem is, is that uh, you'll you'll be wasting your vote. You know, the, if a lot of people will waste their vote because, you know, if you're depends on, you know, if if you say I don't want, you know, the the conservatives to win this. Constitution. Well, I guess the point that I'm making, Henry, and I understand why they're doing this from yeah, a political yeah. standpoint, but at the end of the day, it's, well, put something better out than either the first place guy or the second or third place uh, people, and maybe you'll get the traction that you need as opposed to, you know, trying to, to, to divide the bottom to have enough to beat the top. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it just seems like if what they're selling is great, let's run on that and we'll see what happens. But the whole problem is, and a lot of what, if we look at the platforms of the, say, of, of say right yeah. now, the liberals and the NDP, 
they're very hard to distinguish. But they've always been that way, Henry. They've been that way for years and going more and more. Like, I don't think this is any different than any other election in the sense that uh, other than, you know, the conservatives seem to have a lead. And yeah. and obviously the, the the federal or sorry, the uh, provincial liberals don't seem to be making an impact yet. And and Andrea Horbath, who's been opposition for however long, um, why would she want to concede that? I don't know. No, no, no. The liberal, the, the, yeah. par- the political parties don't want to concede this at all. No, no. They want every vote possible. What we have a condition right now is that if you look at the um, if you look at the polling results, and I've looked at the all of you know all the major uh, polling results that have been released this year, and we're talking about good quality ones, and so we've got about twelve or thirteen of them. What they show is that the liberals and the NDP are in the middle. They're they're jostling for the same type of voters. Yeah, yeah. And basically. If, the, if Ford can basically, you know, stay up, like he, if he can stay up in the upper 30s, which he has been uh, lately, and, and it doesn't matter that, you know, that the NDP and the Liberals are getting 26, 27 percent by themselves, which adds up to a majority, he's going to win with the 37 percent. Mm-hmm. And so that's, 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 the di- that's the basic dynamic here. I understand that, Henry, but again, uh, having uh, Del Duca and Horvath try to convince each one that we're the one that can beat them, yeah. does that in not, in effect, defeat their own ambitions? Well, it, essentially, each of them is just trying to t- convince the voters that yeah. we're the best, and we're the yeah, ones who are likely, because there's not a big difference in the policies, and for that no. reason, they, you know, they're trying to convince people that they have the best chance to win. You know, they, they, it's not that they uh, are so different from each other. They're right. just saying what's really important in the election is who can win against the conservatives, and they have to try to convince the voters. And that's not easy to do because the voters recognize each party leader has their own self-interest. So uh, which one, uh, Horvath or Del Duca, gets the nod to, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty even Stephen race, isn't it? Well, you have, but the the, the, ra- the real races are at the constituency level. We have 124 constituencies. Those are the that's what really determines the outcome of the election. So you have to know who's running in your in your in your constituency and what what's the constituency vote going to look like. And constituency votes often look very different from the province-wide vote. So we know in certain areas, like the urban areas. The NDP does very well. In the rural areas, suburban areas, the conservatives do very well. And the, and the liberals are sort of spread all along, uh, along the province. So they, they have good support all over the place, but it's oftentimes not enough to win seats in a lot of constituencies, and they wind up getting second place, and they don't win the constituency. And boom, whoever gets them, then either the NDP or the liberals will get, uh, NDP or the conservatives will get mm. the majority. So that's that's that you have to pay attention if you're an intelligent voter as to what's going on in your constituency, and for a lot of voters, that's hard to understand. Yeah, that's pretty complicated. Henry Jasek, a great conversation, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Thanks, uh, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Before we start this conversation, I want to tell you again, I am fully vaxxed. I am. Uh, I just got my booster shot because I got it over Christmas, so I had to wait three months to get it. Uh, kids are in the same uh, predicament. Uh, I have uh, two teenagers. 
And now um, I'm, 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 what upsets me about this is not whether masks are needed or not or should be mandatory or not. It's the divisiveness this causes without really uh, examining the scenario and, and, and just assuming that everything is like it was back in the first wave. And I, I thought of this and, and threw this out to Will Erskine to, to help us answer this question and find a guess. When masks were mandatory, all the talk was about our mental health and the damage that was being done, uh, especially with the kids. And not only being locked down, but again, you know, not being able to see, you know, kids expression, kids faces, you know, uh, whether you're in kindergarten going through this, you, you know, you're probably in grade two now, um, going to high school, not seeing the kids, you know, for a couple of years, what have you. Now that the mask mandate has been dropped, uh, and even though most are still masking and, and we're all educated on this now, we all know what, 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 what the risks are. Uh, many want them back, the mandates back. And during this, there is absolutely no mention of mental health anymore, which is one of the reasons why we were trying to get away from this. Now, obviously, safety is the most important thing and balancing this is is very very difficult but now that we're talking about mask mandates again and the hamilton wentworth district school board is talking about this uh there's no chatter about mental health and why we were anxious to get rid of them in the first place let's bring in katherine mondlock professor director face perception lab department of psychology at brock university and with us now katherine thanks for the time hope you're doing well i am thank you for inviting me any validity to what I'm saying when the ma- and again, you know, I'm supporting of everything. I'm, you know, I'm doing my part. We're all trying to do our part, but I hate the divisiveness here. It's just I, because I think it's needless. It seems when they were mandatory, we were all very concerned about mental health. When there was lockdowns, we're talking about mental health. Now that we're talking about, you know, bringing the mandates back, we're not talking about mental health. Is that just me or? Well, I think that the concern about mental health, I mean, I, I suppose there are some issues around mental health with having to wear a mask. But my, my perception is that the concerns about mental health were much larger when we were comparing in-person learning with or without masks right. as mm-hmm. compared to children having to learn from home. And that's where a lot of the mental health issues uh, were stemming from. I, I think that, that if you think about children now, I, I feel for their mental health because we put a lot of responsibility on them. So just the other day, I was walking by my local school, and most of the children were outside playing without masks, which is which is probably fine. But there were children on the playground wearing masks. And I think we can all remember when we were children what it's like to be the child that's different, right? Yeah. And we don't know why that child's wearing a mask. Is it because... Um, they're more at risk for COVID. They're perhaps living with a vulnerable person at home, or maybe their parents told them they have to wear a mask. But I looked at those children and thought, wow, that's that's a big responsibility to put on them. So, uh, so what do you do? Do you make everybody mask? Because I remember um, uh, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry having this discussion about masking in BC in schools way at the beginning of all of this, saying she didn't want people to feel uh inadequate who were masked or and who were not masked and use that as a reason not to mask the students for the longest time so which one's right which what do you do here 
Well, this is this is tricky, right? It's a matter of your priorities. But you know, one of the things about children is they're they're pretty flexible, and I think it, a lot of this depends on the story that we tell them. So my my own sense is that if we tell children the story that wearing masks protects our friends, it protects our grandparents, and um, that this is just something we do for each other because we live in a community, that, that they'll buy into that. And, and my lab's done research and, you know, we can still perceive a lot of information um, from each other's faces, even, even when we're wearing masks. And we've probably gotten very good at this over the last two years. Um, so, so, you know, if we, if we explain things to children, I think most of them are quite resilient. You know, we tell them a few times a year it's pajama day and they should wear their pajamas to school and they do that. Um, but you, you wouldn't uh, expect any child to sort of make that decision on their own. So in the same way, I think if, if teachers and parents explain things in a way that's not frightening, it's just a way to be safe, just like learning how to swim is a way to be safe when you go to a pool. I, I, I'm not sure there's there's a big mental health risk there for children. What about the kid that decides not to wear the pajamas to school that day? Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, they, they can certainly decide yeah. that. So you're asking what about the child that really doesn't wear a mask, want to wear a mask? And I, I agree, you know, that, that, that can be tricky. And, and, you know, we're talking about children here, but we probably need to separate out um, children who are in elementary school and, and young as opposed to uh, adolescents who are in high school, and, and there could be some some differences there as well. Um, so, you know, all, all children of all ages aren't going to respond to this in the same way. But certainly there there is a very, very significant um, mental health risk for some children in particular, if we ever have to go back to a situation where they're, they're learning online at home. That's the situation I think we need to avoid. Catherine Monlock with us, Professor, Director of Face Perception Lab, Department of Psychology, Brock University. Catherine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Bank of Canada has increased uh, interest rates by 50 basis points, taking it up to a full point. Uh, the Conference Board of Canada has drafted a commentary on what the rate increase means for overall the Canadian economy and those of us that uh, are a part of it. Let's bring in Pedro Atunas, Chief Economist with the Conference Board of Canada and is with us now. Pedro, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, you say here uh, the bank seems to have fallen uh, far behind the curve while inflation expectations continue to climb. The longer it takes for the bank to bring down inflation to its 2% target, the higher the chance of workers demanding even higher wages and businesses passing on those other higher costs uh, even more to consumers. Should the Bank of Canada have reacted a little earlier and raised interest rates earlier? Yeah, well, I, I think the fact that they've... Uh put in place just today what they call an oversized uh, increase uh, suggests that, you know, perhaps it would have been more prudent to see rates come up a little bit ahead of this. Uh, we're in a situation right now. In fact, we just got data this week from Statistics Canada telling us that the unemployment rate is at a record low uh, mm -hmm. since uh, the survey was first conducted back in 1976, if you can imagine. So it's there's no doubt labor markets are very tight. That's adding to inflationary pressures. And, you know, perhaps we could have seen this coming a little a little sooner. 
that being said, uh, we've also had, uh, well, we remember prior to the, the global pandemic, interest rates were actually starting to go up. We were starting to see things, uh, you know, come out of the long history of, of lower rates. And all of a sudden with the global pandemic, more money injected into the economy, uh, more relief, more help, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, where do you find the balance between, you know, uh, uh, priming the fire and trying to get more and more out of it and then when to stand back and, and just, you know, uh, feel the heat? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and I, I agree. I, I don't think this is solely a monetary uh, policy issue. Of course, uh, you know, during the pandemic, we saw massive support coming in through programs like the Canada, uh, the CRB uh, and the CERB. Uh, and these essentially, despite the recession, helped lift uh, incomes in Canada to, by a record growth pace, really. Uh, and we socked away, households in Canada were able to sock away a whole lot of money uh, in the last two years. So today, the situation is really one of, you know, there's a, a lot of wherewithal. Canadian households want to get out and spend, the, the economy's reopening, and they're unable to do so net, net, uh, on perhaps services and travel. So we're seeing a lot of spending focused on durable goods, and, and that's been one of the problems with inflationary pressures. Uh, so there's there's that aspect. Um, and, you know, we just had a federal budget that's come out. And despite the fact that we're at full employment, we're still running a deficit of $58 billion in this year coming. So that's, you know, adding to kind of demand pressures overall. And the Bank of Canada lowered rates to record low levels. In fact, they, they said they couldn't go any lower during the pandemic. They've come up a little bit since then. But, you know, they're still dealing with a situation where uh, rates are really low. We've just seen a 50 basis point increase to 1%. That is still very low historically. So all of this stimulus has got to come off. Uh, you know, they want to be careful about how quickly they take it off. But it continues to add to overall inflation. You say, uh, though it's too soon to witness a wage spiral, uh, a wage price spiral, we're not ruling it out in the coming months. What do you mean by a wage price spiral? Well, this is uh, where expectations around inflation are really important. And there was a, a you know a question posed to the governor today uh, about that. Just that, you know, are we addressing with higher rates uh, directly affecting uh, demand in the economy to lower inflation, or are we really kind of trying to set expectations around the bank is going to be able to? You know, beat back uh, this these these high inflation numbers uh, and get us back to that one to three percent target range. And I think that second piece is really important. And what it what it you know essentially what is coming up through a lot of the surveys is that households and businesses are expecting inflation to you know to 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 be quite high for an extended period. And the bank needs to convince folks that that is not going to happen. And we certainly agree that inflation uh, is going to come down, but there's a risk. And if inflation expectations don't come down, then that gets built into you know, possibly wage increases. People won't work unless they see higher wages. And, it, it, you know, if higher wages come up without productivity increases, then that forces firms to increase prices. So it's kind of this vicious cycle where you get higher wages, higher prices without really anyone benefiting from that, except for the fact that, you you know, you, you just got high inflation to deal with. That's what we had, you know, prior to the 1990s. Uh, nobody wants to see that again. And this is where the crux and the risks are at right now. Uh, 
And obviously what's different this time out, Pedro, is coming out of the global pandemic, there's supply chain issues. So people want stuff, but there's not a lot of it. So how do the supply chain disruptions or issues just uh, exacerbate all of this? Yeah, and essentially they're all over the place. Uh, you know, we heard of uh, supply chain issues during the pandemic because of, uh, you know, essentially closures in the economy. Uh, we're facing some of those again because uh, COVID-19 is and these uh, more recent waves are really forcing some shutdowns in, you know, the, the world's manufacturer, that is China. Uh, there's supply chain issues with respect to what's happening on, uh, going on right now with the war in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, we're very concerned about, uh, you know, uh, essentially the, the, the pressures on oil and gas prices having really a, uh, an inflationary impact globally. Uh, we're seeing the same thing in other commodities, partly with respect to what's going on with the war, um, but uh, also more so globally, you know, I mean, food prices, for instance, we we had a big um, drought in Canada and drought in other parts of the world last year, that's adding to inflationary pressures. So all of these things, you know, hopefully will get readjusted over time. Certainly, we're hopeful to see the war in Ukraine end as quickly as possible. Uh, but, you know, right now, they're adding to these very, very high inflation numbers. You know, Canada numbers are running close to 6%. We're expecting perhaps 6% or more in March. In the US, we just saw inflation numbers hitting 8.5% year over year. So this is a concern. Uh, it's eroding incomes and it, you know, it, it, it could be a problem. Pedro Tunas with us, Chief Economist for the Conference Board of Canada, talking about the Bank of Canada increasing rates today. Pedro, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a nice day. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. To mask or not to mask, uh, should we be going back to mandatory masking, Scott? Well, you know, uh, I, I don't, I'm not in favor of it, but I know that a whole lot of other people are. But I, I, you and I have talked about this. I, I think there's a certain point. There's two things at play here. I, I think there's a certain point at which we have to be responsible for some of our own health decisions. And, you know, you're allowed to wear a mask. They're not saying you can't wear well, a mask. Well, and, and not only that, last time I checked, most were. Yeah, so yeah. Are, are the people who are unmasked bothering the masked people that much that we yes. have to have mandatory masking? Yes, yes. Yes, and, and here's another thing I find fascinating. When we were talking about removing the mandatory masking, people were upset that then people who were still masking would be made fun of. Remember that? We're yeah. worried now we remove masking mandates. If people still want to wear a mask, they're going to be made fun of. Well, it sounds more like we're picking on the ones that have chosen not to than the ones that chose to, proving that we misread that as well. You know, sometimes what this reminds me of a little bit, and this is not everybody, let's be honest. There are people who are just going about their lives and minding their own business and doing their own thing, and that's great. But, you know, you and I'm not against know. masking. Like, you know, no. I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. And, you know, when I go out, I was out the other day, I had a mask on. There were some that did, some that didn't. You know, I mean, like, I don't know why, because I'm doing something that you right. have to do it too. Here is the example that I was going to use. Uh, you probably know someone like this. I know someone like this. Many people listening are going to know someone like this. We all know a, a former smoker. And a former smoker is usually or often the most evangelistic anti-smoker person out there <laughs> who then decides that everyone else 
needs to be told. And look, there, it may not just be smokers, but we, we probably know someone. And that's good that they've quit, and it's good that they've made a decision for their health, and it's good that they're doing the right thing for them. But we don't always, you know, uh, look, I, I talk about smoking. You can't smoke in wide open spaces in a public park right now. And I look and I go, I, mm, you know, really? Uh, I'm, I'm not a smoker. I've never been a smoker. I don't love being around people who are smoking. But I think if you're standing in the middle of a field, you're probably okay <laughs> to light up if you want to smoke. But no, we don't allow that anymore. It's kind of the same thing. I think we, we, we have to be able to make some of our own health decisions, which, again, doesn't mean you're not allowed to wear it. And the other thing is, we got to look at the numbers, and I know that people are saying the numbers are going through the roof, and we certainly should be looking at that and keeping track of that. But if we're still not seeing a problem with the uh, intensive cares and with hospitals and all that kind of stuff, you know, we, I know people blanch when we say this. We do in the winter usually have a flu season. People do get sick. People get colds. And I know it's not the same thing. I know, I know, don't scream and yell. But we don't get generally all bent out of shape about that unless there's something that comes along that suddenly our healthcare system is overwhelmed. If, if we start getting to the point where we start returning to where we need to set up field hospitals, yeah, we ought to reconsider this thing. But if this is just large numbers, but not really, really serious cases, I, I, Scott, I'm, I'm, I'm standing on the side of, you know, let, let people make some of the decisions for themselves. We, we can't have governments making all of our nanny state decisions for us all the time for everything. We can't. It seems that we've used the pandemic to shift exactly in that direction. Uh, who's on the show tonight? Uh, we got a few that we're actually, you know, what we're going to talk about today. We've got a bunch of guests and I, and I will, they're great. And we're talking about, um, there was a great study that just found doctors who operate while ACDC is blasting in the operating room do a better job, <laughs> which I find amazing. We're going to talk about why music actually improves your performance because music is sort of, it's, it's, it's invisible. You can't touch it. And yet it's like a drug that makes you do better at everything. But the other thing we're going to talk, there was a letter to the editor. I've never done this before. I've never built a segment or opened a call segment off a letter to the editor in the paper. But there was a letter to the editor from a resident of Ancaster who says, you know what, my house has gone up way, way, way up in value since I bought it due to no good deed of my own. I should be taxed way more heavily to pay for homelessness. Do people out there believe that if you own a home and the value of your home has gone up, that you should be taxed more heavily to help solve the homeless problem in this city? We're going to open the phones and ask people about that one. Good luck with that. All right, another fascinating Scott Radley show coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right. uh, What else we got? Oh, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and Dan and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you. The taxpaying customer to have the last word. Hey, it's Will Weber behind the board. This email came from Sandra and it reads, Bank of Canada announces economy is strong. As a layperson and for the first time, I have come to the realization that strong economy does not equate or translate to people. Because in fact, one of the only strong sectors, as I see it, is a new class of people we should be defining as the government class. As they are amongst the only people with security and a strong future. They are the civilized version of oligarchs. Oh, nighty night.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.